Hello, and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and this is my co-host, Gabia. Hello. So this week, we will be discussing the new Netflix show, Maniac, directed by Kerry Joji Fukunaga and written by Patrick Somerville. Uh, this show came to my attention several years ago when it was first announced because it was directed by Kerry Fukunaga, whom I love, and starring Emma Stone and Jonah Hill, which was kind of an interesting combination. It is about uh, two people with sort of mental health issues who sign up for a drug trial that is supposed to cure them of their problems without using therapy. And basically the way it is structured is that it follows them through these individual stories that are set in kind of different genres uh, as they go through this trial while simultaneously following the scientists running the trial as various things go wrong. So the scientists are played by Justin Thoreau and Sonoyo Mizuna, and they are also great. So I think we had pretty similar reactions to this show. It is really interesting in a lot of ways. A lot of it is really fun, but it definitely has some significant flaws. So we will be going through all of that. So the thing that is sort of the most obviously interesting, and you can see it from the second you start watching the show, is the direction. And Karen Fuganaga, who also directed the 2011 Jane Eyre, which is one of my favorite movies, but probably most famously the entire first season of True Detective, is really, really visually distinctive. And one of the interesting things about him is that he has not really made any two things so far in his career that are anything alike. So his other projects were um, his first movie, Sin Nombre, which is about people crossing the Mexican-American border. And then the film Beasts of No Nation, which is about child soldiers in Africa, which is also on Netflix and is I highly recommend, although it's, as you can imagine, really, really rough viewing. And now this, which is has all these kind of like pop iconography, I guess would be the way I would describe it. And also it's comedic. And it's yeah. not just comedic, it's like absurd comedy. Right. And also sci-fi, because one of the things, like from the description you were giving, I was like, anyone who's not seen this show is going to be like, this show is quite serious. No. And also it's about therapy, but it's like, it's absurd, but it's also kind of retro-futuristic. So mm-hmm. it's set more or less in the modern day, but the aesthetic is sort of late 20th century. It visually looks, without looking like a kind of 80s or 90s pastiche, it has kind of that level of technology, but they've also got this like Inception style futuristic technology. And like at one point there's a 3D fuckbot thing, but we will get into that later. Um, <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> well, yeah, the use of technology is pretty interesting, right? Like nobody has a cell phone. They use, there are a couple references to like disposable cameras and yet there are are these various things like the uh, fuckbot that you just mentioned that are definitely futuristic. Not visually cyberpunk, but thematically cyberpunk elements um, to do with like the economic situation. So the way these characters come together is that both of them have no money and they both are using this service called Ad Buddies, where there is a person who's employed to follow you around and just read out adverts to you. Which is just very funny. <laughs> um, but like they both hear about this drug trial kind of from that service. Yeah, so they, they both are kind of going for different reasons. Like Emma Stone is already dependent on this drug that she's been getting through just like commercial legal, illegal means and Jonah Hill needs money and therapy. But there is this kind of dystopian element and like Jonah Hill lives in this weird box apartment and there's like ads everywhere and that sort of thing. And also the fact that there is this like hugely unethical drug trial, which is like fucking around people's brains. But it, it definitely is sci-fi without it feeling tonally sci-fi, if you see what I mean. I think that's a very good way of describing it. 
I think because it plays with so many different genres in the kind of, they call them something, but they call them reflections. They call them some word like that, but these little stories within the story that they're experiencing when they take these different drugs that are part of this trial. Because all of those are specific sort of film genres, basically. So one of them is like a Lord of the Rings pastiche, and one of them is kind of noirish. Um, one of them is kind of a gangster story. It's such a mishmash of things that it isn't like it's being told as a sci-fi story, like in quotes, right? The box that's holding those stories is this kind of dystopian science fiction story, but it doesn't overwhelm the rest of it. I just, I'm the way I'm describing it. It's not, I'm not really endorsing or criticizing that. Like that's kind of just a statement of the way this show is structured. I actually think that there are some issues with that that we can get into, but it definitely is daring. I would say. It reminded me a lot of the Wachowskis. Before yeah. you watched it, I was like taking care not to talk about it very much. But the one thing I was like, this is very Wachowski, it's like specifically Cloud Atlas, uh, which I don't like, and Sensate, which I do like, which both use a very similar mode of storytelling where you've got multiple characters they're each playing within a specific genre. In this case, it really does overlap quite a lot with Cloud Atlas because it's got this aspect where the same actors are technically kind of the same characters or they're playing, you know, reflections of their selves in people's subconsciouses, but they are in a crime thriller or a Lord of the Rings pastiche or whatever. Yeah, I think the Cloud Atlas is a really good comparison. I have read the novel and the novel, which I have told you many times, is really, really amazing. But that novel is a good example of something, I mean, there aren't really that's such a sweet, generous work. Like, it's not like there are many, many examples of things like Cloud Atlas. But that novel includes all these stories that are different genres of things in a way that is actively doing something. And the movie is fails to replicate that, I would say. What this show does that is similar to Cloud Atlas is that the technical level of recreation of the genres I think is really impressive because Fukunaga is such an amazing director. Like it all looks and feels right in a way that's really fun. Like that's part of the fun of the show is that it does like it sort of jumps around from these various things, but it doesn't all necessarily feel like it's doing what it's maybe supposed to be doing. Well, like when, when I was writing my review, it was this was quite a hard show to review because as you can probably tell, we have very mixed opinions. And I think in general, most critics had mixed opinions and it's sort of like, I mostly enjoyed watching it, um, like especially the parts that weren't specifically about Jonah Hill because he's kind of a drag, which we will get to in a second. Um, but kind of the concept of the show is this, they're like, they've got this very clearly set out theme to do with recovery from trauma and like Morgan said they've got these mini stories which are nominally meant to be exploring the character's trauma but they do it in a really shallow way not in the sense that I'm like well these sucked but like they didn't feel particularly meaningful and it was as if the show kind of was trying to like it just felt like it should have been like so much more deep and complex than it was and I really enjoyed that it was comedic, but then once you got to sort of towards the end and they were getting to the very predictable sentimental conclusion, 
And it was like, well, I don't feel like I've got any kind of emotional catharsis from any of this. Yes, I think I wrote this almost exactly in our planning document. And it was funny as I was sort of writing notes for what we were going to say, I realized my opinion about the show as I was getting to the end of writing these notes, which is what you just said, which is that it's actually just not that deep, but I think it thinks it's quite deep. And oftentimes when I watch things that are that way, usually it's watching things. I don't find this problem with books so much. They're really, really annoying. And I didn't find this show massively annoying in that this way. This show does not seem pretentious and it doesn't seem like it has an overinflated sense of its own smartness because it doesn't take itself too seriously. So it avoids that. Right. Basically, Carrie Fukunaga is not a douchebag. <laughs> yes, exactly. But I do think it thinks it's about like quite deep ideas, even if it's not expressing them in a like douchebaggy way. And it tells you what it's about explicitly many, many times. It's about mm -hmm. what you just said. It's about trauma and recovery and on and on and on. But because it's not actually really showing those things, it is hard to actually care. That yeah, well, this much. is the kind of the difference I have between this and Sensate. Because this show, I would say in most regards, is like technically better than a lot of Sense8, which is, it, it suffers from a lot of Netflix, it's too long and that sort of thing. And also it's very, it's very corny. That is just like something that the Wachowskis always have and I love that about them. But it's extremely emotionally sincere. And while this show is kind of emotionally sincere, it doesn't really, f I didn't really ex give me any kind of feelings. Whereas Sense8, like basically if you're the kind of person who watches Sense8, then it will make you cry because it's got this really sweeping, amazing romances and tragedies and people being, you know, really traumatized by things. It's very sentimental in an effective way. And in this, it would just sort of felt like they were they were following the structure that it knew we had to have for Emma Stone and Jonah Hill to get over their traumas by the end of this like structured therapy session. But it was like, well, I'm not really super bothered about it. I'm more interested in watching Emma Stone because she's so fun and her she's just like a really exciting performer and with Jonah Hill I didn't have that factor because he is just a drag yes let's take this time now to discuss Jonah Hill in this show Morgan was not happy oh with my Jonah god Hill. I just do not understand what happened I think a lot of our criticisms that we kind of just laid out would absolutely have remained in effect if they had cast a different actor. There's a lot of structural stuff that was just never going to fully work about this show, which is what it is. But I think they would have solved so many of their problems by just hiring anyone else, literally anyone. Like there are so many actors in Hollywood and all over the world who could have played this role. And yet they did not hire them. I, I genuinely want to know what the behind the scenes process on this was because it is absolutely baffling to me. Yeah. So like to set things out with these two characters, Jonah Hill's character um, is diagnosed. He's already been diagnosed with schizophrenia. He comes from a very rich family, but he's the black sheep of the family and he's very socially awkward compared to his kind of confident jockish relatives and his controlling father. And Emma Stone's character um, is very dynamic because she's played by Emma Stone and she is also really miserable but she's funny miserable because once again she's played by Emma Stone and her kind of background trauma is that um, her sister was killed um, in a car accident and she never got to kind of uh, apologize for a big fight they'd had and Emma Stone's character is a huge bitch so like the fight is her fault 
when you're going through these dream sequences after they're actually in the trial. The idea is that they are in each one, they don't have memories of their previous lives, they are actually a new characters. So there's one where they're both in the 80s and Emma Stone is this like very funny sort of bleach blonde housewife and Jonah Hill is her husband and he's like this hockey guy and a doofus. And they are separate from the original characters, but there's aspects of the original characters in there, like enough that it feels recognisable. And with Emma Stone, that works really well because she has this energy. And with Jonah Hill's character, it's not that I'm like, I dislike Jonah Hill, because I don't. Like, the only thing I've seen him in is 21 Jump Street, which I love and find hilarious. But with him, his inherent character trait is that he's a really depressed, sad sack character. And it's like, that's not fun to watch. And he's not enough of like an introspective, like indie drama performer for that to work. And also, even if he was, he's in the wrong genre, because it's not an introspective indie drama. It's like this weird, quirky show. And you'll have like the point where I I really kind of clicked for me is one of the early sequences. They have like a 1940s supernatural heist storyline, which is great. So like Emma Stone is wearing this like glamorous outfit and like Jonah Hill is her ex-husband and they're both trying to like run a con at the same seance, right? And Jonah Hill has to play like this suave kind of master criminal. It's like, you can't do that. He's just like, he doesn't, you can't do that. It doesn't work. (laughs) No. And it's, it's just really incomprehensible to me. So Jonah Hill is a good actor. He has been nominated for two Oscars, which I think is a bit much, but it's not as though he cannot perform in roles that are not sort of pure comedy of the 21 Jump Street vein, right? Like that is definitely his best area, but he got nominated for Wolf of Wall Street and he is very good in that, in a role that is primarily funny, but not like off the wall funny for the most part. Like he's playing a person in that, not like an extreme comedy character. He's a talented guy. And in this, he is asked to do something that he clearly cannot do, which is not his fault. But the first episode is focused almost entirely on him and it just, they just follow him around and he is doing almost nothing performance wise, or at least that's how it comes across. And if I had not sort of already been bought into the show in the sense that I love Carrie Fukunaga, the premise was interesting, Justin Theroux, whom we will talk about, I love, and I knew he was going to show up later. And we were recording a podcast about it, so I had to watch the whole thing. I would have been like, well, this is boring as shit, and I'm not going to watch anymore. Like, It's so weirdly it was- based, because the first episode is about Jonah Hill, and the second episode is about Emma Stone. And like one of my friends watched part of the first episode with me, and she was just like, I'm out, you know? And I kept yeah. watching because I had to review it. But it was like, why have you done this? Because the first episode is so downbeat. And then as soon as Emma Stone turns up, it's like, this is so punchy. It was really, really strange. So in the subsequent sort of stories in the story, he has to do all of this stuff to which he's just really not suited. The one that stuck out to me the most was he plays this like son of a sort of mafia guy in Jersey in I don't know what decade it's supposed to be, if it's supposed to be current or what. But he just can't, he just can't do it. It's so unpersuasive. And the writing of that section is also not very good. So it's a whole combination of things. But then you get to the last one of those. And it's take, it's in this sort of Cold War setting. And there's like an alien has 
come and then the alien has died in a hubris way and he's doing this outrageous accent and is basically playing like a comedy character and it's really funny it's so and funny. i was like oh right Th- like this is what you should be doing why are you in this show it's amazing to me that the show was still so broadly entertaining given the fact that one of the two central performers was so utterly utterly uncompelling to me a huge testament to Emma Stone, obviously, and also to Fukunaga. But I just, I just don't get it. Why? So we were, we were talking about this on email because we were just like, this is the one factor where it's like, and I think also quite a lot of people who watch the show are just like, I'm not really sure why Jonah Hill. Not in the sense that any of us are like, he bad. But just like, why has this occurred? You know, just like a really obvious case of miscasting. And we were like, who would we cast instead? So I had two immediate responses and they're both to do with sort of the weird vibe there is between Emma Stone and Jonah Hill, wherein a couple of these like dreams, they are married. And as soon as you have a TV show that's about a man and a woman, it's like, oh, well, they won't they? Unfortunately, because I, I don't give a shit about that stuff. The show is not a romance where they end up, you know, it's not like, oh yes, this is a love story. It's more like, here's two really miserable people who are connecting through this drug trial. And... The dreams aren't romantic, but there's still this like vibe because of that's the way that heteronormative media expectations work. And also they've been paired up. So it's like, it's very confusing, right? So I feel like to recast this, you either have to cast someone who has a sexual vibe with Emma Stone, like someone who has chemistry and or is hot, or someone who like aggressively isn't hot, right? <laughs> so, like you have to have what so it's like either you pick someone who is a versatile charming performer like I think Morgan's suggestion was uh, Andrew Garfield of course <laughs> um, who can like do all the kind of the suave stuff or you have my choice which was Ken Jeong who <laughs> plays who plays the extremely weird professor in Community and if you've seen Crazy Rich Asians he is in Crazy Rich Asians as the weird dad I think he'd be great in this because there'd be no hint that they are actually going to wind up together. So that's out of the out of the way. And he can play so many like weird manic comical roles, but he also can do misery. I've never seen him in a dramatic role, but I trust his performance. <laughs> that was for some reason that was the the first the first name that came to mind when I was thinking of this, and it was before I'd seen Crazy Rich Asians. So who even knows? I'm just well, a casting genius. Yes. <laughs> Well, obviously Andrew Garfield could never have been in this for awkward reasons, but I he came he occurred to me because he can do funny stuff and like suave drama stuff. So that would have worked. The person who came to mind to me in the early episodes, and then I don't know that he could have pulled off the later stuff, but it would have been fun to watch him try, was Jesse Eisenberg. I think that would have been entertaining. <laughs> um, but like truly, there are just so many people. This is the sort of thing that's just very frustrating to me because it's a total own goal, right? Like, why did you have to do this yeah, to yourself? Yeah, it's, like, it's not like, like there's a shortage of men aged approximately 30. Right? <laughs> hmm, okay. So, that was frustrating. What was also frustrating about that character was that his backstory was way more incoherent than Emma Stone's. And Emma Stone's backstory, I think, actually was a little bit too neat, but at least when you're watching it, it's very comprehensible like her trauma is again almost too straightforward and in real life it probably would not be that way but it's television so whatever and i mean if it works for inception it works for a fun inception right which is what this show is exactly whereas jonah hill basically they set it up so 
you know that he's been having these paranoid delusions where he keeps seeing this guy who is sort of uh, an alternate version of his horrible brother. And you also know that he's being asked to testify for his brother at this trial that is, I'm not going to get into it, it's extremely stupid. But basically his family is asking for him to lie for his brother in this trial. And it's not like you need a concrete reason to understand why someone has schizophrenia. Like, obviously, that's, you know, it's a disease. But the thing they sort of give him as, like, the thing that he has to get over in this trial is, like, this experience he had with this girl in college. And, like, it just all doesn't really make sense. And so when they're doing these iterations of things, you keep expecting to understand what is going to happen with Emma Stone's sister. And the stuff with him just doesn't fully make sense. And maybe a better performer in this genre of thing could have made that work, but he can't. And so that whole section of the story is just this Well, I was just watching it like, well, obviously the conclusion into this is that he has to decide whether or not to lie on the stand for his brother, which is like the obvious conclusion. But then the whole middle section was like, I'm not... Well, okay, sure. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, It's just, it was frustrating we should use this this bridge to get to talking about the best part of the show yes which was the scientists yes well this is what's so interesting right it's like they're written as the side characters but their emotional stuff is so much more interesting and complex than the protagonists of the show so much funnier i mean so the deal with this is that Sonoya Mizuno is sort of the second in command of this lab. The guy in charge dies suddenly at the beginning of the show. And so they have to bring back Justin Thoreau, who created this whole project in the first place and has been derailed due to his virtual sex addiction. So he shows up in a, like video in the first episode when they're introducing the people to this trial that is incredibly hilarious but his first real appearance is in the second episode in this virtual reality thing that i cannot even yeah it's like it's like an 8-bit but 3d virtual reality sex game and you know the name of the game i don't remember exactly it's called succulus fucklantis Oh my god, it's so good. I cannot describe to you how hard I was laughing when this, the images of that appeared on the screen. I literally paused it when I watched it, emailed Morgan just the words Justin Thoreau, and then <laughs> no further explanation, and then was just like, call me back in a week. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, I was losing my mind. So, to give some context here, um, I was an obsessive fan of the HBO show The Leftovers to the point where I never actually watched the finale because I was so depressed about it ending. And now I have to go back and watch the whole last season again because I will not have remembered it well enough to just watch the finale. In my defense, the finale aired literally the week I was moving out of Oxford last year and then I was itinerant for two months and so did not really have time to watch television. But also I was really depressed about it ending. And Justin Thoreau plays the nominal lead of that show. It's really an ensemble. But he is so good on that show and I love him. So I was very excited to see him in this. 
The Leftovers is a drama, capital D. Like, it has absurd humor in it, but he in particular is not playing a funny person. He is playing an extremely miserable, traumatized person. In this show, <laughs> he gets a lot of comedy. I mean, literally, his introductory <laughs> scene. It's like, he has, the, he has this fake video where he's introducing the, the therapy, and then he has this succulent Fuckland scene, which he is woken out of by Sonoya Mizuno, who is also playing a different kind of dorky, but very dorky character. And he's got his dick stuck in the machine, and then he's not wearing his toupee. So oh for the whole God. show, his hair is a toupee. I think it's probably his real hair. Yes, they just. But his clues. real hair is playing a toupee, which is the opposite of the way it typically works. Oh but my like, god! But like one of the things I wrote in my review, which was extremely effusive towards these two, because I have no real previous experience of Justin Thoreau, but he's hilarious. Whereas I am like a passionate lover of Sonoya Mizuno, who's in not very many things, but it's going to be famous soon because she's amazing. But anyway, I was like the thing I was kind of writing about is how interesting it is that they've taken these two people who are really hot, right? Justin Thoreau is like a famed heartthrob of the drama set. And most people probably know Sonoya Mizuno as playing like the initial prototype sex bot in Ex Machina. And she is just like a very classically beautiful person. They've not changed Justin Thoreau's appearance, but he is just this absolutely embarrassing, buffoonish character. The ways in which he's fucked up are like very comical and entertaining while being tragic, but like visually very funny. And he's very dorky. And then Sonoya Mizuno's character, she's... Not quite like a cliche of a girl geek, but like almost there. So she's got like really bushy hair and she's wearing big glasses and her she's wearing like a white lab coat and she's chain smoking all the time and she's got bad posture and that sort of thing, right? So she's basically wearing like a nerd Halloween costume, but like not quite enough for it to be bad. She's just very funny and she's using her, her natural English accent, which is also like very like what? <laughs> it was just, it was so satisfying. She is great. I did not register initially that I had seen her in anything before. And then I looked her up and was like, what the fuck? Like, It's so good. So like, she she literally was a ballet dancer. And she got the role in Ex Machina while she was a ballet dancer and feeling really creatively repressed. In fact, she was dancing for the Royal Ballet in Glasgow. So like, I may have seen her dance at some point and I will never know because it was like... <laughs> eight years ago or something since then she's had like a few dance roles like she's in fucking la la land and shit and she's in annihilation as like the the silver alien but now she's finally gonna be famous and i'm hype because she's in crazy rich asians one of the best roles in the movie as soon as she showed up i was like sonoy mizuno is a queen i love her <laughs> she she plays the woman who's getting married and she's just like so energetic and fun and like charismatic and now she's gonna be doing a sci-fi series with alex garland who made Ex Machina and stuff, and she's the protagonist, and it's like, yes. But anyway, that was well, my manifesto. <laughs> so I obviously saw Crazy Rich Asians recently, and I I have an unbelievably good facial recognition, and I cannot wrap my mind around the fact that the same actress played both of these characters. Like, it's just crazy to me. So I read a promo interview for Crazy Rich Asians and she was like, we did a screening of Ex Machina and then like one of my uh, co-stars asked me what role I played in the movie. <laughs> so her co-star didn't recognize her as one of the two female leads of a film with four characters. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not just us being white people. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, she's very good. But it's a really great performance in the show because she doesn't have that much dialogue. And a lot of her dialogue is kind of just like saying technical things about how the experiment is running. But she has such unbelievable presence in the show that you feel like you really know 
what this person is about. And then they're in the writing, there are sort of small details that are really salient sort of character points. So that helps too. There's something at the very end of the last episode that I obviously will not spoil, but that is truly tremendous. <laughs> so she was really great. And then Justin Thoreau, basically what his deal is, is that he has this mother who's a very famous kind of pop psychologist played by Sally Field, who is just amazing. <laughs> Um, hysterical. hysterical and she has is clearly fucked him up to just an astonishing degree she's a horrible mother she criticizes him all the time he has to bring her in um for reasons i will not divulge but it's very funny um and watching the two of them interact is both absolutely hilarious because she is just just awful and he cannot deal with it at all and also, like, genuinely horrible because you're watching this woman just, like, destroy her son. But in a funny way. And also the fact that, like, when she, when she, when she arrives at first, it's like, you're like, I know she's terrible, but, like, maybe, I mean, he's also kind of terrible. So, like, maybe it's, like, a thing where there's two sides to this story. And the first thing she does when she arrives at the lab with, like, her boy toy in, in, in like, in tow is she just, like, kisses her son on the mouth. <laughs> and it's like, oh, no. Well, now we understand where all of your problems have come from. Well, right. So the great thing that they did about casting him, right, is that, like he's done comedy stuff before. He's obviously very funny, as you can tell by watching this. But he has such dramatic chops also that he feels like a person going through genuine anguish. And then it's all sort of set in this comedic context. So when you're watching it, it is very funny. You also feel bad for him, but it feels, I mean, he doesn't feel like a real person exactly in the sense that like he's playing such an outrageous character that like it's kind of too much, but he feels real in the sense that the performance is grounded very much in like, genuine just like angst and the combination of both those performances and the fact that I think the writing of those characters and that storyline which carries through the whole show unlike the Emma Stone and Jonah Hill stuff which changes so much makes their material so much more compelling like, yeah I mean it's like it's like you know you have like a traditional just like subplot structure that goes through eight episodes you know yeah um, and it's just ironic because it's not supposed to be about, obviously they're doing something with them also in terms of like trauma and parenting and stuff, but it's not really supposed to be about them or that. And like everyone I've seen tweeting or spoken to about this, like their takeaway has definitely been that, like that part is the highlight of the show. And the, yeah, some, something got sort of Well, it's like, up. I think basically what we've, what we've come home here too is the fact that the success of this show when it comes to the character is almost purely down to performance because like one of the yeah. things i was like tweeting while watching this was just emma stone is literally making chewing gum fun in this it is not like i'm saying oh they're badly written roles but like the three parts that we were like this is great is where it's like emma stone can literally make chewing gum look good the noi mizunimo's character doesn't actually get like really that much of a development arc not in a bad way it's just like not that's not part of her role and I'm like, I love her. And then Jonah Hill has like the bulk of the writing. And it's like, well, there's nothing happening here. So yeah, cast your stuff well, people, or else this will happen to you. Uh, so we'll see what Carrie Fukunaga does with the next Bond movie, I guess. <laughs> I hope Hopefully. he casts Sinai Mizuno. <laughs> uh, yes, me too. 
Um, I hope he doesn't drop out of it because he has a history of working on projects for multiple years and then dropping out. Because yeah, he I think wrote he's like a little half bit of, of a the diva. screenplay. Yeah. <laughs> he wrote. I enjoyed it a great deal. He wrote several iterations of the it screenplay and then he wanted to do such a dark version that they were like well this isn't gonna happen <laughs> well the version he ended up with which was very populist was good yeah so who knows what happened yeah i mean we'll link to a couple profiles of him he is a genuinely fascinating guy and famed dreamboat the word dreamboat yes. i believe was in morgan's planning to yes this episode. i saw Beast of No Nation at a rare screening because it was a Netflix movie and he was at the Q&A after and the whole audience was uh, very excited about his <laughs> He is as dreamy in person as uh, he appears to be on the internet, both in appearance and just yeah. general I, I think demeanor. when he was first introduced to the world, it was him going to the Oscars looking like, literally looking like Clark Kent in a tuxedo, but with French braided hair. That was the Emmys, but okay. uh, yes, that was when most people first... I'm glad that you have this even more encyclopedic pinpointed memory (laughs) of this. It was when he won... I mean, I obviously knew who he was before that, but it was when he won the Emmy for True Detective and went up and gave a very enigmatic speech and everyone was like, who is this man? And I was like, I've known about him for years! Like, get off my lawn! (laughs) Um, But he definitely is a little bit of a diva. Which makes the fact, we should, the last thing we should talk about just briefly, because uh, I saw this article today and it was so bizarre, about um, Netflix's algorithm affecting how they were editing and preparing this show. So apparently they would literally go through sort of, I guess, scripts and maybe when they were doing the editing also. And the way Netflix makes television shows now is like they have this mysterious algorithm and that tells them sort of when people are likely to drop off from watching things and what makes people keep binge watching. And that it literally, they were like, well, you can't have that scene because that's the sort of thing that will make people stop watching. And he was like, okay. So the fact that he agreed to all of this is sort of remarkable. I guess he, maybe he's growing up. I don't know. But I, I'm just amazed. The issue with like the way Netflix ratings work is it's a total black box. Whenever you see any headline about Netflix ratings. It's always either information that Netflix has shared and therefore I find immediately suspicious like when they were like Iron Fist's a huge hit. It's not. Um, Or it's something that's been taken from like a secondary source. They use like app tracking or like they have other things where they're like listening in on people's Netflix accounts like from their cell phones and stuff really creepily. But it's like with this I'm very curious about that because like consistently everyone, like every TV critic and a lot of people who watch a lot of Netflix know that one of the consistent problems with Netflix is that like loads of stuff is really too long. So is it the case that the viewing public is actually okay with watching something that's really long and boring? Or is this like a pilot test thingy for them figuring out how to solve this? Because this show does have much shorter episodes than when you're watching, for example, a Marvel Netflix show where they're always like nearly an hour long per episode and I'm slowly dying while trying to review them. Just cut 10 minutes. Did you see today that the new Matt Weiner show, The Romanoffs, every episode is like 90 minutes long? Ugh. Why? Why do that? Fuck off. Just fuck off. I know, right? Like, stop these men. God. Another thing I will say about Netflix before we kind of finish off. It's something I did also mention in my review, but I have a sneaking suspicion that there is someone 
in like the Netflix commissioning executive office who has a very specific like narrative kink because this is the <laughs> fifth Netflix prestige drama that follows pretty much the same trope of there being a sort of like patriarchal scientist figure who's like an evil mad scientist who does experiments on people while making them have weird mental connections and then they then the protagonists find a mental connection so you have sensate where the main characters all form a psychic connection and are chased after by a villain who wants to experiment on them in a lab and put electrodes on their heads then you have the innocence where it's a bunch of ladies with shape-shifting powers who find connection after getting put into a cult by like a creepy patriarchal scientist who puts electrodes on their heads and experiments on them. You have uh, Stranger Things where the most famous character is a girl who is brought up in a lab where she has psychic powers and then bonds with other kids after escaping from a patriarchal man who puts electrodes in her head and does experiments. Then also <laughs> there's two more. There's this one, which is Maniac, and then there's um, the last one, which is the OA, which I enjoyed tremendously, which is about a girl who is kidnapped by an evil patriarchal scientist played by <laughs> my evil boyfriend, Jason Isaacs, who puts her in a tank with a bunch of other people, tapes electrodes to her heads, and they all bond really closely. And then when, she's a success, when she escapes out into the wider world, she bonds with other people again while also sharing her trauma of having electrodes stuck to her head. <laughs> this has happened five times. They're all the same. <laughs> it, all of them are like, this show is so unsettlingly weird. None of these shows are weird. Maniac is weird kind of tonally, but like thematically, that has happened five times among the highest budget of Netflix's shows. And also it bears a lot of resemblances to Legion, which is famously the weirdest show, but actually is just confusing. So what we should take away from this is that we should write a show where a man does experiments on somebody and puts electrodes on Prefer- her head. It doesn't have to be, but preferably a vulnerable white girl does have to be involved in some yes. capacity having electrodes in her head. But like yeah. several of these shows are actually quite diverse. My favourite is definitely the OA. I would highly recommend The Innocence, which also is well-paced and well-acted and very emotionally intense. The OA is genuinely the weirdest and has a finale, which is, I think, perhaps one of the most divisive finales of a non-long-running show. I would never spoil it for you, but um, I enjoyed it. Many did not. <laughs> yeah, I remember it uh, <laughs> dropping and there were indeed opinions as I recall. <laughs> I was excited to like not cover that in a professional capacity. So my mother and I just like marathoned all of it over Christmas holidays. And she doesn't like anything pretentious, but she was like, I love this because she wasn't informed that it was pretentious. So she was uh, free from that opinion. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I'm very happy for her. <laughs> On that note, uh, let's, let's conclude there. That's great. Uh, next week, we will be covering the New York and London film festivals. Uh, we have been watching, or I have been watching already many films at the New York Film Festival. Uh, I'm excited to talk about them. And I'm sure you will also have many things to report back about London Film Festival. I have been keeping a blog of reactions to films at NIF on our Patreon. So if you would like to read my thoughts, you can subscribe there at patreon.com slash overinvestedpodcast. Otherwise, you can find us at overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.